to young people in Ireland. We know that you've made enormous sacrifices since the pandemic began. You've given up two years of your youth to help keep others safe. We've been hit and hard by this pandemic, but I think the pandemic just highlighted the things that they were previously existing as well. As a generation, we're the first not to improve on the previous one in terms of wealth, income and future prospects. So we kept on saying, if you work really hard, you can make it. And it's kind of tipped that American dream promise over into many, many young people thinking this is not going uh, to work. Yes, there is a very good dialogue at European level, and that's our European youth dialogue. It is precisely such a dialogue between young people and decision makers that has helped to identify the objectives of the European youth strategy, including the objective of a greener Europe. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the European Lens with me, Francis Fitzgerald. In today's episode, we're discussing the young people of Europe as the EU embarks on the European Year of Youth. We'll get the views on national and European issues, debate the most pressing challenges facing young people across Europe, as well as discussing the impact of COVID-19 on their lives and what the future looks like. Later, I'll be joined by the European Commissioner for Innovation, Research, Culture, Education and Youth. That's Maria Gabrielle to discuss the European Year of Youth and how the Commission intends to improve the lives of all young people across Europe. First, I'm joined by Harry McCann, founder of the Digital Youth Council, ambassador for the Safer Internet for You campaign, and European Youth Journalist as part of the European Year of Youth, and Professor Danny Darling, Professor of Human Geography at the University of Oxford, and Christiana Sinofontos from the European Youth Forum. So Harry, let's start simply. Can you define your generation for me and what it means to be young in today's Europe? Yeah, I think that's, I suppose it's, it's an easy and a complicated question all at the same time. I think we're a complex group. Um, we are one of the most connected and educated generations in history. Um, and I suppose with that brings us a lot of confidence and self-belief that we have a real power to influence change. Um, and I suppose all of that's in, despite a landscape of uncertainty as well, um, from climate change to social inclusion, um, from housing to the future of work, we are all too aware of the challenges facing us in the future. Um, but I think the rise in youth activism shows our determination to secure a better and brighter future for us all. So I think, I, I suppose to define us, we are complex, but I suppose we are a generation filled with confidence and self-belief. And I think we're really determined to, to leave a a lasting mark on the world. So I think that's how I kind of put us in a nutshell. That's a very interesting description because it's both challenging, but at the same time, you're talking about young people's confidence and more activism. Let me ask Christiana, what do you feel about what Ari has just said, about how he's described young people today? Would you agree with that? Definitely. I would identify uh, with what Harry just mentioned. I think we are the generation having the most knowledge uh, the most of tools around us to use in order to navigate through life. But at the same time, it's so difficult to do so. And it's so complex because of many uh, things. We are also the generation of young people that um, we've been already through three crises at the moment. Uh, and we are still in an ongoing one, uh, the pandemic one, which is, uh, is it really hit us uh, in many ways, in various ways. But I'm, I'm really positive regarding our generation 
because I see the potential there. I see also the willingness. And of course, uh, the skills are there uh, along with the knowledge. Christiana, you're saying that again, a bit like Harry, that this is a generation that is conscious of having a lot of skills, but really living through crisis as well. And so those skills are really being called upon and have to be used. What do you think is the single biggest challenge, Harry, arising from that crisis? I think there's a lot of challenges. Um, I think if you have to look at the biggest one, I think it has to be housing. Um, Across Europe at the moment, young people are being kept out of the housing market by high prices, rising rents, an inability to save, and I suppose stagnant and, and insecure wages in a lot of cases. And I think it's probably going to prove to be one of the biggest challenges facing young people and, and low-paid workers as well in the future. Um, we're being kept in the rental market a lot longer. We're battling the rising cost of living. And I think as a generation, we're all too aware of that challenge. Um, and I think, look, coming out of the pandemic, we've all spent a lot of time at home. A lot of people moved home as well during that period. But we, we really are eager to have that independence and that freedom to go and explore the world around us in a lot of cases. And I, I just think being forced back into our childhood homes in a lot of cases is, is an unideal situation. So I think that's one of our biggest challenges. Um, I think, as I said, I'm, I'm very optimistic in a lot of ways. And I, I do try to push that as, as much as possible. While we do face a lot of challenges, there's a huge amount of opportunities. Um, being a part of the EU, obviously being able to travel, work and live and um, wherever we please within the EU is a huge opportunity. And it is a great chance to explore and educate ourselves and, and to discover the world through that. So I think, look, while there is challenges of housing and the cost of living, and other various things that will come as a result of the pandemic. I think a lot of us are hugely optimistic despite all that. And I think there are challenges that we're willing to face head on and hopefully our, our policymakers are too. Let me return to COVID-19 in a moment, but let me bring Danny in here now. Danny, can I ask you, and I know you're interested in intergenerational inequality. There are vast differences for young people now when compared, for example, perhaps to their parents or grandparents' generation, let's take buying a house. It's a lot more difficult than it was for the older generation when buying your house probably in your 20s was considered fairly normal. What's your view on what you've been listening to from Harry and Christiana? Uh, It's very interesting. A, A majority of people across much of Europe could buy their own house in the 1960s and 70s, often their own apartment, of course, and they could do it quite young and they could start a family quite young. And then it changed. It was different in different countries, but in some it became incredibly hard. And what's remarkable about this is that the current young generation in Europe is one of the smallest generations that we've had for a long time. We had very few children in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So it's not because there are a large number of people. And it also isn't because there's a lack of apartments or housing. We have been building apartments and houses, but more and more of them have been empty or they're used as a second home by people as inequalities have risen. And also we have a rapidly aging population in Europe, which often means a relatively elderly person living in the family house they brought their family up in, but living in it 10 or 20 years longer than used to be the case. And we haven't begun to sort out what do we do about this. It's a huge policy failure, isn't it? I mean, it's fascinating to hear you saying that this is the smallest generation of young people we've had. And I suppose a lot of houses, as you say, are being occupied maybe by one person and there's lots of bedrooms. 
But we haven't really found the policy solutions to that, have we? Uh, no, we haven't at all. Um, we're very wary of intervening in people's housing. Um, and also, of course, as house prices have gone up, as rent has gone up, people have begun to rely more and more on that wealth or that income in their retirement. And then that locks us into the problem because you have a lobby who don't want houses to become cheaper, who don't want rent uh, to be lowered because they're relying on the high rents and the high prices, perhaps with their pensions. And by kicking the can down the road, by telling the young people, don't worry, eventually you'll get older, the problems become worse. And we're now seeing rising proportions of people in their 30s, 40s, and even early 50s uh, having to rent when they don't want to rent in many parts of Europe, and also having to uh, share housing with people that they don't know uh, in cities where there are homes that they could be in, but those homes are not available. It's kind of depressing for Harry and Christiana to be listening to that, isn't it, Danny? I mean, do you see any country that's getting it right in terms of housing for young people and access? Oh, there's, there's huge variation. And, it, and in a way, one way to think about it not being depressing is we had a, a sort of similar problem after the war when there was physically an absolute lack of houses and damage from the war. Our problem now is not a lack of houses. Our problem is not that we have to build a lot and it's because we're not building that we don't have enough. Our problem is the inefficient use of our housing stock. And that is very good news because we could solve this problem without increasing carbon pollution by building a lot and so on. Uh, famously around Europe, Vienna has one of the best housing policies. Uh, very low rents for many people in Vienna. Finland has almost no homeless people on the streets and again has a housing policy uh, to ensure that people are housed, although Helsinki is becoming very expensive. Uh, the Netherlands uh, have, but also France, um, have relatively good laws and rights for tenants that, that make uh, housing better. And in Germany, um, it is very hard to evict a tenant. Uh, so renting is you know, often a choice, not something you have to do because you cannot buy. And in an ideal society, you want people to choose whether they buy or rent, depending on whether they like looking after property or not not based on whether they can afford to do it. It's a fascinating summary, Harry. What's your response listening to Danny? Yeah, I think it's a sad and depressing state, to be honest. And I think I, I probably share a mood that a lot of young people do, which is we feel let down by politicians in a lot of cases. And it's unfortunate. But, you know, the, the stat comes back time and time again that as a generation, we're the first not to improve on the previous one in terms of wealth, income and future prospects. And, I'm, you know, it, I, I'm, as I said, I always do try to look for the positive in these situations, but it's it's difficult. And I think it seems to me as if owning a home now is a unrealistic dream or an unachievable dream in a lot of cases. And I just don't ever think there was generations before us who thought the same. My, my parents were both married, had a home and their first child, but the time they were 23 um, I turned 24 in September and I'm, I'm nowhere anywhere close to that um, and look I, I know there's a lot of conversations about how we're developing a lot later and how we're educating ourselves better and going out and discovering the world and previous generations didn't do that but I think the option has been taken away in a lot of cases as well and I think as, as Danny has pointed out the, the great part about this is that 
there is a solution and there is things that can be done, but there should have been things done earlier. And I'm not confident that there's enough being done now to make sure that not even just my generation, but the generation that follow us will have access to housing. Because the, the stats are depressing. Like I know in, in Ireland alone, we, we pay more than 30% of our disposable income on housing. Um, and for young people who are, as I said, experiencing stagnant wages, it, it's very difficult to save up and to get into the, the property market or climb the ladder. So yeah, look, it's, I think it's, it's depressing, I think is probably the word and it's unfortunate, but it, it's a sad reality for far too many people at the moment. And Christiana, would you say that for many of your friends in the early 20s, is this on their mind? Well, it's an open scar for all of us, uh, especially housing, but not to mention the family that I think Danny also mentioned. I mean, families are all a priority now to young people, exactly for what Harry mentioned previously, all the struggle around it. Uh, is not a high priority. And I have to mention here that as a European youth forum, we ran a survey called Beyond the Lockdown, uh, the pandemic scar on young people. And actually, uh, that was a research based on the findings of a survey of up to uh, 4,000 young people across Europe. And they say exactly this thing. The findings highlight this deep social, economic, Um, and also mental health challenges and barriers young people are facing as a result of the current crisis, but as an ongoing also situation. And looking at the progression of the situation of young people over the years, since the the pandemic began especially, it demonstrates the need of, um, let's say, the need for a youth-inclusive recovery. And just to give probably a solution to this situation, it's about time that the national governments and the institutions uh, prioritize youth through social investment and employment policies that they can actually go beyond uh, addressing immediate needs and that are more forward-looking and rights-based in order also to to tackle these long-term impacts uh, that young people are facing at the moment. And this is probably the only way also to ensure that these scars um, are not the ones that young people carry for the rest of their lives. Danny, what do you think about the impact of COVID-19 on young people? Has it just shown up the problems that were there already or has it made it worse? What's your view on that? Uh, It's quite remarkable. In the UK where I'm based, the government for its statistical agency has carried out uh, a survey every two weeks of the feelings of the population how they are uh, obeying covid rules and so on but has also asked them a series of questions on their mental health every two weeks we've never done this before and you can look at the results uh, by age and the age group reporting the most anxiety and distress and arising that are the youngest who of course were the group themselves least likely to become very ill with COVID, but most affected by the restrictions that came in, particularly to do with moving around and with education, and most affected by the uncertainty about the future uh, that it brings. Because if you're already on a precarious route, trying to maximise your educational qualifications, trying to get these jobs in jobs markets where there are no longer careers for life, paying a huge amount of rent and trying to work out how on earth can I end up being one of that minority who doesn't have to pay rent. When something like COVID comes along and completely disrupts 
the labour markets, who's being employed in cities and so on, your already precarious future that you're worrying about becomes even even more precarious. And, and this pandemic, it is very unusual. It's the most traumatic thing to occur to the continent since the Second World War. Um, but it, it is, it is, I think it's upset the kind of balance that we'd sold to young people where we kept on saying, if you work really hard, you can make it. And it's kind of tipped that American dream promise over into many, many young people thinking this is not going uh, to work. Uh, the other thing I should say in relation to the issue about housing is, of course, it doesn't just affect young adults. It also affects all their parents who so many of them are now living with. So there is an older generation who love having them with them. But, you know, <laughs> well, don't necessarily want to have their grandchildren living with them as well. But this research that's coming out about anxiety and distress in younger people and their life plans being disrupted. Harry, Christiana, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think if you if you look at the pandemic, it, it had been mentioned time and again that young people have been disproportionately affected um, by it. Um, it's put, we've had to put our lives on hold, um, our hopes and dreams on hold as well. And you know the impact on job losses, mental health, education are, are far reaching, and and will continue to impact us for a long time in the future as well. And I think that's what a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate is that just because you know we we have to stop wearing masks here or we can have more people in pubs and clubs and bars doesn't mean that the scars are going to heal straight away and that young people are going to feel the benefits of that straight away um, and i think what what's most difficult part of it all i personally found anyway was that trying to navigate your way through the, the normal obstacles of life difficult enough you know learning to grow up in the normal world was was hard enough but trying to open the new normal is difficult and throughout the pandemic young people were scapegoated time and again by the media and by people in power and, and they enabled us as you know careless reckless and everything else in between so while trying to navigate our way through this new normal and trying to cope with as you said the mental strain of dealing with the pandemic we're also then trying to deal with the fact that we're being blamed for a lot of the things that happened throughout so it's it's been a challenging time, and I think what Danny said as well is that you know, COVID has added on to existing problems in a lot of senses, and it's probably just highlighted a lot of problems that were already there. And you know, I I don't want to live with my parents for the rest of my life. I certainly don't want to raise their grandchildren in in my bedroom. So by all accounts, I think the sooner we can move forward, and as as Christina rightfully said, have a youth inclusive future. I think the the better. Well, it certainly sounds from what you're all saying that we need to use this European Year of Youth to put these issues firmly on the agenda and begin to look for solutions. Danny, let's look to the future for young people and how we can build up supports for young people and opportunities post-COVID, given the kind of data that's emerging about the impact, which I think really hasn't been shared enough. Well, I guess there was scepticism at first because... You know, we lost 6% of our over 90-year-olds you know, from the pandemic. That's And it's a bit higher now. So, you know, almost one in 10. Um, and so when when this started coming out, as, uh, I think older people like me were at first sceptical. But then you realise that if you're young, you're quite unlikely to have dealt with illness, let alone uh, death at all. And the shock of suddenly being told you may be carrying a disease that could kill somebody and you do not know it, and your behaviour, you know, that is, is 
quite an immense responsibility to put on people. And importantly, the pandemic isn't going away. It goes up and down, but each time it goes down, the actual level of, of the proportion of people who have it is higher than the plateau before. So we're going to be living with this uh, for some years. And that's why we have a scarred, you know, not as bad as a war by any ways, but the next worst thing to a war, a scarred generation coming out. And we dealt with the generation who lived through the last war in a way not very well. The men didn't talk about it. They bothered it all in. Now, this young generation are better at talking about things. Um, but we need to give people hope to deflect them off. And you've heard it, you know, housing is the most obvious one. And there are ways and, and policies to encourage people living on their own in their old age in large houses, not to force them, but to encourage them to move out. And particularly... Uh, to move out to housing without stairs because eventually <laughs> I'm fairly old eventually all our hips and knees begin to go so you know but it it won't happen by itself leave things to themselves and what we saw across Europe tragically was that as the number of people who died rose more property came onto the market and we actually had house price booms while we had increasing numbers of deaths because the property was being bought, bought often by people who didn't actually need it. And so we know that the market does not sort out property. Um, it does require intervention and a, and a careful intervention uh, to do it. Otherwise, you know, everybody's individual second home or holiday home or underused house or the house where they say, I need many spare bedrooms when family visits, that may all make sense individually to you and your family. But you add that up, and if just 10% of people behave like that, you've lost your starter homes, you've lost your mobility, and, and you end up with a very, very dissatisfied younger population. Danny, you touched on an interesting point there, that perhaps the general public haven't been that sympathetic to young people. And you even said at the beginning, you yourself maybe weren't, until you began to really look at the evidence that was coming out. Would you say that's something that's shared and that maybe in the European Year of Youth, it's something that we really need to get across? Uh, I really think we do, because it's very easy to be sceptical. If you, um, you know, I'm a university professor, so I, I've dealt with uh, students all my life. I've got older and older, they all stay the same. They're all young and fit and healthy. And, you know, and it's easy to become sceptical and, and students have always complained. And so so the danger is that... Is, is that you get a kind of a disbelief and then you get a in my day you don't know how hard we had it kind of story which I can easily do I can tell you how much money I was paid to do a PhD and so on and the danger of doing that is that we don't actually recognize what has happened particularly with the pandemic in that you you've suddenly gone to a situation where you've been really scared of what you're going to do to others and when I watch young people often wearing a mask in the middle of a field but there's kind of no need to I was at first skeptical and then I thought this shows just how scared people have become how worried uh, they are and it's like I say when you're older some of these worries become easier to deal with um, because you have dealt with tricky things in your life and in particular relatives and other people around you have died when you're younger Hopefully, this hasn't happened to you, and and so it is. It is much harder uh, to deal with, and much harder to be complacent um, 
about it. And at the same time, we've herded the young into our universities during the pandemic. So the universities have done very well, um, but they're going to have to go out. <laughs> and so there's a kind of a large bulge of 21, 22, 23 year olds, um, larger than before, entering a job market that doesn't necessarily want that many people in cities or doing jobs in offices, which used to be full of people under 30. And then you suddenly look at a very divided society and you, and you think, am I going to have to be a delivery driver on a bike, cycling pizzas to other people who can't be bothered to go and get their pizzas? And I, I you know, I can see why the anger is going, is going to rise, uh, given all of this. Harry and Christiana, it sounds like we need a bit more intergenerational solidarity going into the European Year of Youth. What would you say we need to be focusing on in the coming months? I think we we probably tend to, to try to rank order, I suppose, our pain and difficulties and challenge. And we try to say, you know, one generation are more difficult than the other and, and so on and so forth. But I think what, what we probably need to do is just recognize that there has been challenges. Um, we face severe challenges due to the pandemic, but there is also existing ones that need to be addressed. And I, I'm hugely optimistic about the European Year Youth for a number of reasons, but I think the biggest one is just the recognition of the challenges that young people have faced generally. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to come together and to try to find some solutions to the problems that we're facing. Um, at the end of the day, we don't want sympathy. I don't think any young person wants sympathy. They just want recognition of the problem and solutions. Um, and there's plenty of solutions out there. And there's plenty of people who are determined to find them. And, and that's kind of, I think, what the hope is here. It's not that, you know, we, we don't want a pat on the back and, you know, I, I wish us well. We want somebody to go, you know what? We appreciate the challenges here. We're going to work with you to find the solutions and to make sure that the problems that we face, future generations don't face in the future. And that, you know, we can be optimistic about the future because so many of us want to be and there's so many exciting things that lay ahead. But these things just keep holding us back and, and things like housing and cost of living. But they are big, big problems and, and there is solutions out there. So we just need to work together to find them. And Christiana, would you agree that this year presents an opportunity? Uh, it sounds like young people are really beginning to describe what's happened during COVID to them and what the challenges are for this young generation. Francis, allow me before I answer to that to uh, go back something that Danny mentioned and tackle, which was about employment. And um, I find it super inter interconnected with the housing, uh, which we were discussing previously. And I want to emphasize here that prioritize quality job promotion in policy responses. It's about time uh, to, to, to happen. And a uh, few solutions probably to the, um, to the policymakers that they, they will listen to this podcast is that, it's that we ensure that all young people, regardless of employment status, have equal access to social protection and income support. Uh, and we try to remove this age-based eligibility that excludes many young people from accessing those uh, benefits. And allow me also to bring another aspect of what we mentioned previously regarding the COVID-19 consequences. Uh, and it has to do also with young people's uh, participation. Um, we hear many times that young people, we are the future, but in reality, we are the present and we are much engaged in political actions across all the aspects of life. 
And it's about time to boost youth participation in the decision-making process. And it's about time for our democracies uh, to, uh, you know, allow to young people to have the space and time that they already owned in order to uh, be part of this policymaking. Now, when it comes to the European Year of Youth, um, I want to remain super positive about it. Um, after all, it's the European Year of Youth, and it has to go beyond the promotional activities and bring, let's say, a long-lasting impact on young people's lives. Young people are the backbone of Europe, but they are too often ignored or overlooked. So we want to see a stronger focus on youth as a distinct group in policymaking, but that is not possible, of course, without better uh, information. And of course, we want the thing that I've just mentioned, young people at the center of the decision making. Uh, and that's why we are aiming at, um, at priorities like VOTA 16 or boost youth participation in the decision making process. And it's now a very nice opportunity also uh, with the Conference on the Future of Europe uh, to uh, represent a significant occasion, uh, especially for the citizens, the European citizens, including us, the young people, to share a vision for the future that we want to see in our continent. Well, thank you so much, Christiana, Danny and Harry, for joining me today. It's been a great discussion. And it is really, I suppose, about building that inclusive recovery and taking particular note of what the experiences of young people have been. I'm now joined by Commissioner Maria Gabrielle. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of my podcast. As we know, 2022 is the European Year of Youth. What does that mean? Hi, Francis. It's a great pleasure to be here together with you. Uh, I must say immediately the year spirit is dedicated to a generation that has suffered from COVID-19. And the purpose of the year is to listen, to involve and to support our young people and to encourage their participation in all our initiatives. Because what we want is to have a European Year of Youth broad in scope to cover all policy and social areas of concern to young people. And this is why it is so important to co-create it together with young people in order for it to lead to concrete actions and have a long-lasting impact and a legacy. So the European Year of Youth is aimed at young people of all ages, social backgrounds, all regions in, in Europe, those with fewer opportunities, rural areas. And that's why what we would like to have is different events, debates, activities that will be organized across Europe at national, regional and local level. Maybe one important thing, we know that our young people would like to be involved, but for them, there is three main priorities for this European Year of Youth, is education and training opportunities, climate change and well-being and mental health. And that's why we count on them. Why we would like to involve them? Because if you'd like to succeed, that will be only possible with young people. For that, we have one-stop shop is the European Youth Portal because we created a special web page dedicated to the year on the European Youth Portal. And there, everyone can find information on the latest youth-related initiatives and projects and participate in activities and events across Europe. So I hope very much that there will be a lot, a lot of activities coming from young people in Ireland. That sounds very exciting. But of course, we have a totally different context now with the Ukrainian war. Following on from the COVID crisis, how do you think that's going to impact on young people? 
Well, our young people uh, face particular challenges, but at the same time, what we have seen during the COVID-19, how much they are mobilized, they are here to help, to support other young people, and not only. And I think that what that's exactly what we would like to, to do, together with them, to stay focused on initiatives that will have added value for them. That's why I insist so much on this co-creation process during the entire year. And of course, we would like to address some of the main issues. When we talk about COVID-19, we need, we need to address the issue of mental health, uh, because this has greatly affected young people. And that's why we'll have concrete initiatives on that. Other, other important negative consequence, that's, if, uh, of course, the higher risk of poverty or social exclusion. And here we have the many, many young people are, that are neither employed nor in education or training. And here the high rates of youth unemployment often make headlines. And that's why we'll have a new initiative, ALMA that will help disadvantaged young people to get a work placement in another member state. And participants will benefit from individual training and support before, during and after their stay abroad. And that's something really important. Of course, when we talk about uh, Ukraine, yes, we firmly con condemn that. And I'm sure that our Erasmus participants, our European Solidarity Corps as volunteers, will continue to promote what they already have done extremely well, the understanding and solidarity among people from all countries and all backgrounds. And yes, we are determined to support Ukrainian students, young people, teachers and educators in these extremely challenging times. What is the European Commission and the EU doing to protect the future of young people? I mean, what do you think is being done to rectify those intergenerational inequalities we currently face, which are so serious? A lot has been done, but I admit that the challenge maybe is to have better communication and to give much more visibility to the different initiatives. Allow me to share with you some of the examples. Of course, spontaneously we are thinking about next generation EU. Uh, here we, we have encouraged member states to make children and youth a priority in their recovery plans. Of course, I'm thinking here about Erasmus Plus and its predecessor programs because they have given nearly 12 and 12.5 million young people, students, the opportunity to study, train, gain work experience or volunteer abroad in Europe and beyond. And we have improved it. The new edition of Erasmus Plus is more inclusive, greener and more ambitious with an almost doubled budget of over 28 billion euro. Another example, Discovery U. It has been taking more than 130,000 young people on train journeys across Europe since 2018. And this year will increase the number of travel passes. We distributed 60,000 tickets last year, which was already a record. And this year we'll give 70,000 tickets. We'll launch two calls, one in April and the other one in October. And six new countries are joining now the Discover EU. Something very, very important for our young people, young people receiving a travel pass will get a special card, giving them access to discounts on accommodation, food, cultural activities and local transport. Of course, I can't mention the youth guarantee, a commitment to young people under the age of 30. 
Now we need to improve it. Okay, but let's do it together. Finally, I would like to mention something that is maybe not so much well known by our young people is the new European Bauhaus initiative. With the new European Bauhaus initiative, we are also paying special attention to youth, especially in 22. That's why that's why that was introduced as a priority for Erasmus Plus in, in, in 2022. And example, new European Bauhaus prizes, a special strand within each category dedicated to young people to show their ideas on how to transform the places they live, they live in to become more inclusive, beautiful and sustainable. Of course, I will stop here because you can see there is a lot of examples and I didn't mention even the European Social Fund because don't forget that for the next period, member states with an above union average rate of people aged 15, 29, not in employment, education or training, should invest at least two and a half points of their ECF plus resources to targeted actions to support young people. Again, for me, we have a lot of initiatives. Maybe the challenge is really to better communicate, to give more visibility and to create synergies between the different initiatives in order to be much more positive. At least the feeling for the positive effect should be there for our young people and not for, for the institutions. Maria Gabrielle, European Commissioner for Innovation, Research, Culture, Education, Youth and Sport. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode of The European Lens. Thanks also to my earlier guests and to you for listening. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Until then, take care. <laughs>